kind of an intense video, wasn't it? <laughs> but it kind of sets the mood. Uh, we are in the first week of a new series that we're going to attempt to capture the idea of revelation. And that's a big feat if anybody has ever looked or studied or briefly read the book of Revelation. It's a big feat. So we're only going to tackle part of Revelation in the series we're calling Worlds Collide, When Worlds Collide. Because this idea of Revelation is really, it's not just about the end times, but it's when the kingdom of God finally clashes with the kingdom of earth. Because it's, it's not just like we, we die and we go to heaven. In the end, we find out actually they become the same. They, they overlap, they crash together. And so we're going to be looking at that by looking at the first uh, couple chapters where we get letters to seven different churches at that time. Uh, but before we tackle such a feat, how about we go to God in prayer? Because I need some prayer for my tackle Revelation. So please, let's go to prayer. God in prayer. God, I thank you so much for who you are, that you love us so deeply, and that you give us your word through Holy Scripture. Even if at times we really struggle to understand what it means for us and what it means for our lives. So, Lord, we pray special blessing upon this gathering that we dig deeper into your word and as we look at this confounding book of Revelation, that your spirit would be upon us, opening our hearts and minds to receive your word. And, Lord, that you would silence any voice in us but your own. And we pray for the people sitting around us that you would open their hearts, open their minds to receive your word. And Lord, I pray that as my words stray from yours, may they fall away and quickly be forgotten. But may your word, your truth, and your promise remain upon our hearts forever. In Jesus' name we pray. And all the saints say, Amen. Amen. Okay, so let's just start out and acknowledge Revelation for what it is. There's some really trippy stuff in Revelation. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. If you've ever looked at the book of Revelation, it's some scary, weird, trippy stuff in there. I mean, come on, John. What were you thinking? What substances were you on in writing this? I mean, what kind of revelation is this? I mean, it's just, it's like a bad horror movie. When you read all this stuff, and, and no wonder it's one of the most disputed books out of the entire Bible. There's probably more differences of opinion on the book of Revelation alone than any other book in the Bible. Because it's confounding. As we look to it, what, what is it? Is it meant to be literal? Is it a vision? Is, did, is it something that's happening now? Is it something that hasn't happened yet? Is it something that already happened? Where are we in the midst of this? There's just so many questions. But this crazy stuff, these images, these creatures we see are enough to make most people raise their eyebrows. Of, okay, you know, I, I get the Jesus stuff. You know, love your neighbor as yourself and all that, even though that's a hard one. I get it. But when you start throwing a big beast at 666 at me, I don't, I don't know about that, Jesus. I don't know. But just look at the first chapter alone in the passage that Lee read for us earlier. There's just these images of these golden lampstands. So apparently Jesus likes to appear by candlelight. I guess it adds to the drama, right? So these seven, seven massive lampstands, and then he's clothed in this long white robe with a golden sash. Okay, that's not too crazy. But then they start talking about his hair. His hair on his head is as white like wool and snow, and I was 
shining. So I guess Jesus has aged a little bit from the last time we saw him. And then his eyes were like flame. I mean, normally you hear about his eyes were as blue as the ocean. Well, no, apparently Jesus has demon eyes because they're, they're flaming and they're bright and shining and piercing. And then you get down to his feet and they're bronze. So apparently he's been tanning, but only his feet. And then you get to his voice is like roaring, rushing water. And that just brings up all sorts of bad images when he starts talking. I start thinking more of a, a Snapchat filter for that one. Or what about he's holding seven stars in his hands? Seven stars. And then there's a sharp sword protruding from his mouth. You know, normally I would be worried as a parent if there's a sword coming out of my kid's mouth. But Jesus has this sharp sword. He doesn't hold it in his hand. He carries it in his mouth. Because apparently he's in the circus. So then his face is shining like the sun. I mean, this is crazy stuff, isn't it? What in the world was John seeing? You know, and if, if you look at a different translation of the Bible, such as the Lego translation of the Bible, this is what you might see. It's impressive, isn't it? I bet you didn't know there was a Lego translation of the Bible. Maybe a few people, you knew, yes. There is a Lego translation of the Bible. It's fascinating and quite humorous at times. But this is this idea of Jesus. Now, this is a far cry from the Jesus we all remember, isn't it? Can we agree on that? I mean, this, this Jesus doesn't resemble the beach boy Jesus that's hanging in an aged frame somewhere in your old church as you walk by. You know, the smiling, looks like he belongs in a Mentos hat. I mean, that Jesus, it's, it's not that Jesus. This isn't the Jesus that I grew up coloring on the children's bulletin during worship, because that's what I did to keep myself active. This Jesus is not the same Jesus that we've been talking about. It's more of a Jesus that looks like he belongs in... Alice in Wonderland, doesn't he? And you wonder, when Alice in Wonderland was written, what kind of substances were going on there? We know that caterpillar was on something. But what in the world is going on here? And why include such a crazy book in the Bible when so much of the other stuff seems so practical? What in the world could be practical about such a vision. Well, I think to understand even these seven letters, these seven messages that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks, it helps us to understand the purpose and the context of Revelation and the type of literature it is. Revelation is what we would call apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic is kind of a study of the end times. It has a different format, a different function, and it functioned in that time a little bit differently than our apocalyptic movies of today would function. You know, our movies of today are really just to scare you and to make money. That's what they're about. But this wasn't to scare you and make money. It had a different purpose. And the purpose was this. The purpose was to set our present moment in light of the unseen realities of the future. To see our present, right here and now, in light of the unseen future. Because when you look at Revelation, this, this mantra would do well to rattle in your minds that things aren't as they seem to be. 
There's things in the future that we can't possibly see they're going to happen, but it also puts our present in light of our own seeing present. Because Revelation would tell us that there, there's a whole other world, there's a whole other reality going on right here and now in the midst of what we're experiencing. Because can you see and witness everything that's going on? I mean, sure, we've studied particles and atoms, but there's, there's, there's molecules that are bouncing around right now that we're just unaware of. There's germs all over the seats and everywhere attacking you right now. You can't even see it. There's this unseen world, and there's this spiritual world that's outside of our purview. And Revelation is all about putting our present in light of this unseen future and this unseen present. There is more than meets the eye. There is more than what you could possibly conceive going on right here and now. Daryl Johnson, in his book, Discipleship on the Edge, which is a book that I'm using very heavily in, in my research for this series, he mentions this about apocalyptic literature. He says, the fundamental conviction of apocalyptic literature is that things are not as they seem. There is more to reality than meets the unaided senses. There is more to reality in the present moment than we can ever know with our eyes and ears. And then he goes on to explain apocalyptic li literature opens our eyes to this unseen world, just as we talked about. Therefore, this style of literature utilizes different things to help convey its meaning. Images say a lot. And images may not always be as literal as we paint them to be in our own mind. He uses in his book to explain this idea that images help get beyond our, our just our intellect and moves into the realm of emotions and imagination, where he believes we actually live. We don't always live in our intellect, do we? Sometimes we live in the realm of emotions and imagination in that you need something that's all-encompassing if you're going to help explain a reality that's beyond what we can see. You have to move beyond just the mind. And so you use vivid imagery. It wouldn't be any different from some political cartoons you've seen over all the years. Isn't it amazing how a political cartoon can use little to no words to convey a whole lot of meaning? And a lot of times it's, it's a very uh, caricature kind of way. One of the images he uses is uh, of the American flag, and it's unraveling, and it just says, our moral fiber. You don't have to say a lot to understand what that cartoon might be saying. And now this isn't a today cartoon. That was actually a cartoon from, from several decades ago. But just a cartoon can convey images. And so this apocalyptic literature, these vivid images like Jesus that we were seeing conveys meaning. Does it mean Jesus literally had a sword sticking out of his mouth? Well, maybe he did, but maybe he didn't. But is that really the point? Pun intended. <laughs> or does having that sword mean something? So that's how we have to view apocalyptic literature. That yes, there's some crazy stuff in here, but it may not all be as literal as we may want to take it. And other parts may be quite literal. But is that the meaning? What is it trying to speak to us? 
How is it helping us to see this unseen reality of right now in this unseen future? That's the question we should ask. But we also should see this writing in the context of which it was written. This is a revelation, a single, by the way. It's not revelations, it's revelation. It's one complete revelation to John. And John, this would have been approximately, probably in 96 AD, so a long time ago before anybody in this room was around. And this was the beloved disciple John, the one that Jesus loved. And at this point, he would have been somewhere probably in his mid-80s. So he's getting up there in age, and he's on exile on a prison island in Patmos in the Aegean Sea. See, things had changed quite a bit. He was exiled to this island of Patmos by the Roman Emperor Domitian, who took over after Nero. And this is when the church was in heavy persecution. And Domitian was one who really escalated the violence and the oppression of the Christian church. Because as history teaches us, not just the Bible, history teaches us, Domitian was likely extremely insecure individual. And he was so insecure that he needed everybody to worship him. So he made it a law that everybody in the Roman Empire would worship him as a god. If you didn't, you would either be exiled or put to death. Well, guess what? Did John worship him? No. John is like, I will pay my taxes, I will do my duty, and all of this sort of things, but you're going to make me worship you like my God? I can't do that. And so he was then exiled to this work island of Patmos, where people would work in quarries. It was off the mainland, and they were just left there. And since he was there, and he was allowed to write, he had to use, he had to keep in mind that there were people reading his mail, like prisoners in prison today. <coughs> Somebody's reading their mail before it goes out. And you have to keep that in mind and be careful of what you said. Like, don't ever walk in an airport and start talking about bombs. Not a wise thing to do. Bomb, 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 bomb. You will be frisked and put off into a room and who knows what else will happen. You have to be careful what you're writing. And so that has to be taken into context that he is using images to help convey meaning to these people outside that maybe would go over the heads of the Roman officials who are reading his name. This was under the reign of terror of dimension, and it was a horrible time. The letters that we're going to look at are seven churches. Were there only seven churches? No, there were more than seven churches. These are just seven of the most influential churches at that day and age. They are, seven is a common number in Scripture anyway. Seven is really the number of completeness, so there, there's kind of this, this idea of seven is important. Maybe they could have thought of an eight, but seven was an important number. And we start in Ephesus. Why Ephesus? Well, a mail carrier would have hit Ephesus first, uh, heading from Patmos. Also, Ephesus would have been the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire at that time. And so we we go back to this chapter one that we read earlier. Let's let, I want to unpack this image of Jesus because I think it's important for us to have this in mind as we look at this letter to Ephesus, as well as all the rest of the messages that we're going to be looking into. 
John is in crisis. He's exiled. The church is under heavy scrutiny, under heavy oppression. And I'm sure that he spends a lot of his time praying out to God. Where are you? What's going to happen? So how does Jesus respond to him? He gives him a vision. He gives him a vivid image. It's, it's a sense of, it's almost like Jesus came and pulled back the curtain and said, okay, this is what you don't see. This is what's going on behind the scenes. To give you a new perspective of what's going on and what will happen. And Jesus comes to him in this vision first, in this crazy image. So let's, let's unpack it a little bit. The golden lampstands. Why seven gold lampstands? What could that possibly stand for? The seven churches. That's right. We have a scholar over here. You're preaching the next sermon. Uh, so we have the gold lampstands. They represent the seven churches. So there's almost a sense that Jesus could just walk up at any moment and snuff one of those candles. And as easily as that, the church and the life of them would be extinguished. So Jesus is standing among these golden lampstands. He's clothed in a long robe. It's a priestly robe by description. Why? Because Jesus is the high priest, right? And interesting note that adds a little nuance to it is the Latin term for priest is pontifex. And you know what it literally means? It's a building term meaning bridge building. Now, how could the high priest also be a bridge builder? Forming the chasm between our old broken life and our sin and the glory of God? Isn't there a chasm between? Don't we need a mediator, a savior, a bridge from the old to the new, from sin to holiness, from death to resurrection? Jesus is the bridge builder. And so he's communicating something in just what he's wearing, just as a police officer communicates through his uniform. And as a young hip pastor communicates you through wearing shorts and a polo on Sunday. It's just because it's really hot, that's why. <laughs> and then the eyes like flame. What could that possibly mean? Do you think Jesus was just had a pink eye and it was really bad? Or does it have deeper meaning? What could it mean? The world will get set on fire? Maybe. Maybe he has laser vision, like Superman. Maybe. Anybody else? What do you think that could symbolize? That's purity of fire. Purity of fire. Piercing gaze. Fire can see through, and, and fire can be utilized to purify metals, to, to burn out impurities. So this is idea that it's just this piercing gaze. Nothing can escape his piercing gaze. And nothing can be unchanged by even his gaze. That's pretty intense, don't you think? Feet like bronze. Was Jesus tanning? Or do you think it actually had a little bit deeper meaning than that? Consider bronze. Especially at that time, bronze was the strongest metal they really could produce. And if anybody remembers and have read the book of Daniel, you remember a similar image of a statue made of different materials. And in that vision, does anybody, here's your Bible quiz, does anybody remember what the feet were made of? 
like clay. Which is stronger, bronze or clay? Would you want to build a home on clay <laughs> or like a strong metal foundation? Bronze. Bronze, that's right. Bronze is stronger. So there's, you know, someone reading this probably would have been very well read in Daniel at that time and would have seen the imagery and connection that Jesus is different from this failing kingdom that was shown to Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel in that dream. Jesus is the firm foundation, unflinching strong and rooted. His kingdom does not rest on shaky feet. His kingdom rests on strength. And then he's holding these seven stars. We later learn that the seven stars represent the seven angels that oversee each of the churches or they're watching over each of the churches. But there's also this other sense, this cosmic sense that I think would be interesting for readers at that time to know. At that time, it was believed there were seven planets, and they worshipped the seven planets, and oftentimes their gods were named after the different planets. And one of the gods was believed to hold all of the planets in her hand. Here, Jesus is the one holding the planets, the stars, the cosmos, everything that's even beyond our sight that's just barely a glimmer in the sky. Is held in the mighty hand of our Lord Jesus. The Son of Man holds sway over the cosmos himself. And then let's get to the craziest image of all, the sword. What is going on with the sword? They do? Yeah. What was that? Hebrews 4.12. Hebrews 4.12. What does that say? Indeed, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the soul and spirit, joints from marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Mm -hmm. This is the word from the mouth of Jesus pierces through all the nonsense. It goes straight to the matter. We're not talking about some little slender fencing sword. We're talking about a two-edged, mighty broad sword that can just, you know, lop off the head. I mean, this is getting really graphic here, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Talking about lopping off heads, fire. But it's this mighty sword. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. Christ's words are not limp. They cut through willful resistance, divide good from evil, overcome rebellion, and establish righteousness. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, holding you. His word is piercing. So you must listen. You cannot not listen. Or that is good over there. You can listen. So that image of Jesus is important because as we start to look at each of these messages to the seven churches within Revelation, John pulls one of these attributes out for each of the churches. Purposefully. And so we come to the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus is an important, very influential church. Why? Well, consider this. The church in Ephesus was founded by who? Can you guess? Paul. Paul. Paul, the Apostle Paul, the great mighty Paul, founded this church. 
And he actually spent more time there than he did at most of the other churches. I think at one point he spent about two years there, which is more than most of his pilgrimages allowed. And when he left that church, he left it in the care of Priscilla and Aquila and then Timothy, his beloved son in the faith. I mean, Timothy was, you, you could kind of see Timothy was kind of his favorite. You know, you're not supposed to have favorites as a parent, but Timothy was clearly Paul's favorite, his spiritual son. And so he, he helped lead the church, and the Apostle John ended up in that church. And since he was the beloved disciple, do you remember who he was placed to take care of on the cross? Mary, the mother of Jesus. So Mary, the mother of Jesus, was a member of this church. That's a pretty high-profile church. Founded by Paul, led by Priscilla, Aquila, and Timothy, John the Apostle, and Jesus, or Mary, the mother of Jesus. That's one high-profile church. And so this message is to them. And the message starts like this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right. Now, a quick point about these angels. What's not very clear is it a, is it a literal angel? Is it a messenger? I mean, this message is clearly not just for the angel, whoever that is. I mean, this could be the messenger, the leader of the church, this is supposed to convey, because it's spoken to the entire church. And what's interesting is that issues that each of these individual churches face, these seven churches, speak to the issues that any of us can face. And we can have multiple issues. And so to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So that's the image that John conveys to Ephesus, is the stars and the lampstands. And here's just an interesting little nuance from what House explained in chapter 1. Two words are changed. In chapter 1, it says he has the seven stars. Here it says he holds. Isn't that a little bit emphasis? on who has control in this matter. And in chapter 1, he stands among the seven lampstands. Here he walks among the seven lampstands. Jesus is actively walking in among these churches, almost like an inspector, looking around, watching over, protecting, seeing what's going on, because Jesus doesn't just sit idly by. He's active. And here he is walking among the seven churches, which doesn't mean just those churches, right? It means every church. All of us. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. Jesus starts this message with praise. I mean, you hear what's going on here and you begin to wonder, well, what could even be wrong with this church? This sounds like a good church, doesn't it? They've been hard at work. They're an active church. They're doing good work for the kingdom. They're buzzing with activities, with ministries and programs. People are actively involved. It's a good thing. And mind you, this is a church being oppressed by the Roman Empire, but yet they are active and hard-working. And I know you cannot tolerate wicked people. They are guarded against false doctrines. And they hold fast to the purity 
of life and right belief. They are not swayed by false leaders, of which there were many. They are staying true to the gospel message of Jesus. So what in the world could be wrong? You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. I mean, it continues with glowing praise. They're energetic in their service. John Stott puts it this way. He summarizes the condition of the church. He says they're energetic in their service, patient in their suffering, orthodox in their faith. What could possibly be wrong in this church? But God's piercing gaze fire, purifying gaze, finds a flaw hidden beneath the good deeds, the active ministry, the big programs, the right theology, and the birth. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Jesus talking about? What love? What happened first? Aren't we doing all the right things? What is first love? First love is the experience between two persons that fall in love. You know, there's, it's interesting that Scripture uses the illustration of the bride and the groom to explain the relationship between God and the people of God quite a bit that our earthly love relationships are somehow this dim image of this cosmic relationship between God and his people, this love, this devotion. And if we use that as an illustration, following the loves, you know, it's that first, it's that excitement. It's like the mountaintop experience. You go to the conference, and you leave all energized, and you're excited about it, and you would, you're going, I'm going to do this, 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 and this. You start making your list. Been there? Or when you first fall in love with somebody, you're thinking, this is the greatest person ever. How can I ever feel differently about this person? And even on the wedding day, you're thinking, man, this is going to be the greatest thing ever. It's not going to be hard. We can stay married forever. <coughs> oh, how little we know. Promises that we make in light of that love and affection and great intimacy. Throughout Scripture, this is the relationship that's used to illustrate God and His people. But you know what? It's also a fitting image because in a culture that is plagued by divorce and brokenness, how often do we see couples falling out of love? Have you seen it? People falling out of love. People who could have been passionate at first. And maybe you were even there on their wedding day thinking, this is the couple that's going to last. They're going to stand through it all. And maybe it's just five years down the road, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. And people are just done. Calling it quits because it's not the person I married. Somewhere along the way, we fell out of love. And now we've just become roommates. People who say hello as we pass in the hallway or pass off the children to take to the next activity. So what, I ask you, 
What happened in a relationship where people fall out of love? I realize there's lots of different examples, but generally, what is shifted in a relationship that causes people to fall out of love? What do they lose? What is lost? Loyalty? Love? Focus. Focus. Communication. Communication. Priority. Happiness. Happiness. Togetherness. Togetherness. And how about let's take that a step further. The ultimate togetherness. Intimacy. Intimacy speaks to the closest that you can get. What is lost is intimacy. You know what? It doesn't just happen on one day. It never happens in just one moment. There may be a fight that's the catalyst that says, you know, I'm done, I've thrown out my hands, I'm filing for divorce. But it's never just that one moment. It's been a slow fade. It's been a loss of intimacy over time. A loss of attentiveness over time. Daryl Johnson imagines conversation between us and God in this way. God says, I have this against you. You have left your first love. But Lord, I'm working hard for the church. I know. But you have lost your first love. But Lord, I'm fighting for the truth of all kinds of fronts. I know. But you've lost your first love. But Lord, I came out on the front line securing these heads of the kingdom. I'm doing good work. I know. Thank you. But you have lost the attentiveness, the tenderness, the extravagance of your first love. What here matters? Not so much what you do, but the closest you are with the one who does all of this for you. The one who holds the stars in his hands. Do you still love him? Or are you just doing stuff for the kingdom? You can do the right thing, but have the wrong motivation. And maybe you started with the right motivation, but it shifted. Is it still really about your first love, Jesus? Have you lost the extravagance of your first love? It happens so easily. Or Palmer even names it the Ephesus Syndrome. Thomas is illness. That when you have strayed away from your first love, the passion is there. It's the Ephesus syndrome. He says the irony of this latter condition of the Ephesus syndrome is that the Christian becomes totally preoccupied and fascinated with things and goals. In fact, actually, let me read. I actually have it on the screen so you can read. The irony of this latter condition of the Ephesus syndrome is that the Christian becomes totally preoccupied. Fascinated with things and goals which would have never won him or her in the first place, and to have joined the church. Arguments over there it is. Arguments over fine doctrinal points, distinctions of polity, exoteric giftedness, etc., etc., etc. How can it happen to us? It happens in marriages. It happens to human friendships. It happens in the life, the discipleship. Somewhere along the way, we lose focus, attentiveness, 
love and intimacy with God? Are you intimate with your Savior? Or are you going through the motions? Are we as a church still in love with our first love? Or have we become preoccupied with so many other things? The finances. With place to meet. Ministries to have. Great mission projects. How to keep things interesting and how to connect with visitors when they come. How do we reach sustainability? How are we going to get the equipment that we need? How are we going to keep people engaged? I mean, these are all good conversations to have, but are we still in love with our first love? Is Jesus still mean more to us than building this thing that we call a church? Does Jesus still mean more to us than gathering on Sunday and looking good for the people out there? Does Jesus still mean more to us than connecting with the community? Because if he doesn't, it's all for naught. We have to maintain focus on our first love. Otherwise, we're heading toward divorce. What can we do? How do you fall back in love when you've fallen out of love? Well, Jesus doesn't leave us hanging. He actually gives us hints to how we step back into this love and intimacy that we are supposed to have, that we long for, but sometimes without even knowing it. He goes on in verse 5. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you have done at first. Jesus is not just saying this in judgment. He's saying this in love, and he's giving us a step-by-step way to fall back in love with him. Because falling in love isn't something we just trip into. It's actually nurtured. It's a choice. Love is a choice. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. In 1 Corinthians 13, all of those are choices. It's not just something that happens. You choose to be patient. You choose to be kind. Love is a choice we make each and every day. So first, consider how far you have fallen. What is Jesus saying here? What are we to do? The first is this. I want you to remember. To consider how far you have fallen, you have to consider how high you were first. How did you feel when you first recognized the power of God and the love of Jesus? How did you feel when you first came into the faith When things finally started to click, when you first engaged with the church, how did it feel then? And consider how far have you fallen from that? Do you still love Jesus as much as you did initially? Jesus simply calls us first to be honest and recognize where we were and where we are now. Isn't that the start of confession? Confession is acknowledging the truth. We always think of it in the negative sense. Oh, it's when I say all the bad stuff I've done. No. Confession is positive, too. Confession is acknowledging the truth, the reality. So we remember. And then, what does he ask us to do? Starts with an R. Repent. Repent. What does repent mean? 
Can I? To say we're sorry. And that's the start of repentance. Repentance is the start, is acknowledging where you are, but then repentance takes it even a step further. It's like a U-turn. It's, I realize that I'm wrong, that I'm broken, I'm doing something wrong, or I should be doing something that I'm not doing, and I'm going to change direction and I'm going to start doing it, or I'm going to stop doing it in some cases. I'm going to change direction. It's a U-turn. I'm going to repent, redirect, go in a new direction. So we have to acknowledge that we've fallen short. And then we have to turn and start acting differently. And then the third, he wants us to redo. Go back to the things you were doing when you first fell in love. Let's go back to the, the relationship model. When you first fell in love with the love of your life, what were the things you did? You'd buy them flowers. You'd spend long hours talking to them. How many late nights did we have when we first met Kate? Where we would stay up to like 2 in the morning just talking. Talking about everything under the sun. We could talk about everything. Now there are days that go by that we talk very little. What were the things we did first? And isn't it interesting that when you first fall in love with somebody, or even when you first start a friendship that means so much to you, you will drop anything to go spend time with them. You will make room for them. It doesn't matter if you're busy. You will shift your priorities to go spend time with them. Are we still doing that now? How many relationships people fall out of love because they stop making the person priority? Now translate that to your relationship with Jesus. Do you still love Jesus enough to make time for to redo those things you did when you fell in love in the first place. Reading scriptures, studying scriptures, time and prayer, gathering with other believers. What are the things you were doing? Redo those things. Relationship experts would tell you all the time that if you want to stay married, start dating your spouse again. Now Jesus may not be your boyfriend in that sense, but how do you start building that intimacy and that closeness with Jesus again. We do those things. And if you need help, talk to me. Let's talk about it. Let's go back and look at the spiritual discipline series we did a, month, a couple months ago. What are the things we can do that actively put us in the presence of our one and only Savior and help us build trust and intimacy and closeness? Because it's so important that Jesus offers this as the promise. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give you the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That doesn't sound like condemnation to me, does it? That sounds like a Savior yearning to be your first love again, who wants to be close. Have you lost your first love? If so, brothers and sisters, it's time to repent. Let us go to God in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you that you pursue us even in times when we fail to pursue you. Help us to reclaim our first love, that we might fall deeper in love and closeness and trust with you 
the God of the entire universe. Help us remain focused on what's truly important and let everything else flow from there. In Jesus' name we pray. All the saints say, Amen. We now have the opportunity to go to that God in prayer. So we're going to have a moment of silence and during this time.